While they are going out, you can be opening your Bible to the book of John, the Gospel of John in chapter 1, and uh, we're just going to read one verse from there. Um, today, I, I've entitled this sermon, A God Like This, and uh, you've already heard a little bit about that through the singing, and uh, we're going we're gonna to do even more um, uh, with that. Uh, I, I started this out to be the, the facts about Christ, um, and, and I started getting bogged down in the facts a little bit much. And so uh, I'm not going to give you as many facts as I wanted to. I had about three pages worth. And uh, I don't have that much time and you don't have that much endurance. So um, we're, we're going we're to try to do this uh, a little bit where we can get a hold of it. But listen carefully to the words of the Gospel of John, chapter 1 and verse 14. And here's what it says. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory... Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Would, would you pray with me again before we start? Lord God, again, we, we are so delighted that, that just we can approach your throne by the grace that you have given us. And so we know that we are not worthy, but you are worthy. We, we know that we, we have no standing with you apart from Christ, but we are so thankful that Jesus came so that we could know you and that we could approach your throne of grace with boldness. And so, Lord, we come to that throne of, of an undeserved gift to us and ask that you would give us more, give us more understanding, give us more um, uh, listening ears, give us more uh, to, to comprehend what it is your word is telling us and that the spirit interprets to us. Lord, may your word become li alive to us today. And I pray, God, that we would kill all false idols. We would put down everything that is not Jesus in our lives that we might hear. Lord, we pray for freedom today. We, we know we are oppressed. We know we're attacked by enemies that we cannot see. But you know them, and your messengers come to do war for us. And so, Lord, we, we acknowledge the war that is going on between you and our enemy and your enemy, Satan, and that we have been enlisted in that war. May we be faithful soldiers in that battle. And right now, Lord, we just ask that you grant us freedom in the name of Jesus and that those who need to hear your word today will hear it. And, uh, Lord, that we would walk out in obedience to what we hear today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's an interesting verse there. I, let, me, let me begin by just the, the house that my kids grew up in. There, there was a door jam there, and, and it has a lot of marks on it. And you know what those are. You know where I'm headed with that. When they're real little, you stand them up, you mark it, and then you measure how tall they are. And you might put a date and a name by it and all of those things. And, and, and we do that to kind of measure their growth, right, just to see it. If you live with somebody that's growing, uh, you might not notice it. And for some reason, we kind of want to go, wow, look at this. Last year, you're only this tall. Now you're this tall and that kind of stuff. And when we talk about growing as Christians, we, we can't put our head next to a door jam and put a pencil mark there, right? It, it, it becomes a little uh, difficult maybe to describe or understand. Yet we are called to grow in grace we're called to grow in Christ. And, and I've said this in, in the weeks uh, coming up to this, that sometimes we, we may not realize that we are stuck on a story that we heard as a kid. Do you, do you understand what, what I mean? I, 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 when I was a kid, I liked to collect rocks. 
all right? Now, I had a rock collection. All that meant was every summer we'd go visit my relatives that lived in the mountains, and we'd go stop at these streams and different things, or on their farms, they'd plow them up, and there would be a beautiful quartz or some rock. And I'm just a little kid. It just, it looked interesting to me, so I would pick it up. And my parents' trunk would be loaded down with some rocks, and they'd come home, and they'd dump them in a spot in the yard. We had a pile of rocks. That was my rock collection. It didn't matter what the rock was. I mean, it wasn't diamonds, and, and I, I guess I never got over it, but uh, got, a, got a rock here I picked up. I just liked it, so I picked it up. You know, it, it, it's weird. You said, do you carry that around your pocket all the time? Wouldn't you like to know? But we need to grow in our understanding. We, we had the opportunity to stop off at the Grand Canyon. We did a cross-country tour with, when our children were small, and we took uh, Grandma with us, and we crossed the country. And we stopped at the Grand Canyon. And if you've not been there, you step up to that edge, and you go, wow. They built a glass platform out over the canyon since then. And if I go back, I ain't going out there on that. All right? just, I know thousands of people have done it, and they're safe, but I just don't trust it. But anyway... We just walk up there and it's like, oh my goodness, look at this. It, you cannot describe the grandeur and the, the, the amazement. I remember a TV commercial, you say there are this many thousands of canyons in the world, but we only call one grand. And it is indeed grand. And I noticed the rocks because that's about all there is there. You know, rocks, a little bit of water at the bottom. And, and, and there, it was just beautiful. And according to the time of day, the light on it, 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 it just changes. And so I appreciated the beauty of it, but... Being there, they, they have stuff going on, the hotel room TV, and they've got books. And you start to realize that each layer of that rock that's a different color, that geologists have been studying this stuff because each layer has a different meaning and they have a different way it is formed and all those things. Here, for you as a believer, here's the cool part. It's not in the order they think it ought to be in because it was created within a few days by the flood draining off of our continent. Just so you understand that. The Colorado River could not have cut through that much rock given the time that even they say it took. There's no way that would happen. It was just mud flowed out. That's why it's a little bit messed up in there. But when you start to understand what those rocks actually mean, you grow in appreciation of what that Grand Canyon is. It's no longer just an unusual in my opinion, rock that I saw on the ground, I picked it up. It becomes meaningful. And, and I'm afraid we, we, we tell the story. We, we love nativity scenes, my wife and I, and we, we have a few of them. Um, in fact, we can't always put them all out. And I just noticed Joseph lost his arm. I hope I didn't do that today, <laughs> bringing it up. But this one's a little broken. But here's, here's a little nativity scene that, that I brought. And Boy, I grew up with this, and obviously they're holy people because they got these gold rings around their head. I mean, you know, we have this, and we get stuck. I went and got the manger and put it up here just so you would have a big visual the whole time. We get stuck on the baby Jesus in a manger, and, and that's okay, but we don't truly understand what it means that Jesus became flesh. And so I wanted to try to help us with that as best I can. I always have a statement for you to take home today. And there are four words that form the basis of everything we believe. And they're up there right now. The word became flesh. Now, since I didn't put it in context, and you may not be familiar with this chapter, 
the first verse of this chapter starts with, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And then in verse 14 it says, and that word became flesh. And so we understand that to be Jesus, that in the beginning was the word. Why does the Bible use this word, word? Why does it use the word logos or word uh, to describe Christ? Because a word describes something that you can't see. It describes what I'm thinking in my mind. It describes, I, I didn't give you a description of the Grand Canyon. I could give you a technical description, how long it is, how wide it is, how deep it is. I could describe all the rock strata in it, what the water does at the bottom, the canyons, the flow, all of that stuff. And you go, well, that's interesting. But when you, but when you experience it, it's, it's a little bit different. And here we have the word made flesh. And so I want to describe Christ today uh, in, in four ways. And first of all, he is a God who became a man. All right. And I want to explain a little bit what that means as quickly as I possibly can. I grew up hearing the word incarnation. Around Christmas, you hear it a lot. You hear it year round. But we talk about the incarnation. And a couple of weeks ago, as I was thinking about this, I, I said, what does incarnation mean? And I said, well, it means Jesus became a human. But that's, that's an illustration. That's not a definition. So I realized I didn't know the definition of the word. So I looked it up. And here's the definition of the word. The word means to take on a particular form or state. So we use this word for normal human beings like you and I. Uh, let's say uh, 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 one of the kids here in our church. And they decide they're going to be a lawyer. So they go to college. They go to law school. They become a lawyer. And they are a lawyer for 10, 20 years. And then they decide to run for Congress. And they do. And they become a congressman. They now have a new incarnation. Their first incarnation was a lawyer. Now they're a delegate. You understand? Did the person change? Nope. Changed jobs. Got a new title. Got a new state added to their existence. Okay? So understanding that, you, you have to understand that that verse in John 1.14, the word became flesh... It says, and dwelled among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I'm afraid that I've confused this in sermons leading up to this. Because I always say Jesus put on an earth suit or Jesus put on a body. But, but it goes far beyond that. When we say the word became flesh, implies something to us, doesn't it? You can't become something else unless you already were something. Is that right? You can't become something new. Unless you were already something else. You following that? So what was Jesus before Bethlehem? He was God. Where was he? He was with God. And then what did he do? Became flesh. Right? Now, that word flesh is a Greek word, S-A-R-X. I always kind of, I don't know why that word catches my attention, sarx. But that's the Greek word for flesh. But that word, if you define that word, it means soul and body. He was God and he could appear in a body. He did it many times in the Old Testament. But now he possesses a body. He took on a body. It's an incarnation. He went from spirit to body. Let me just ask a simple question and might make that even clearer. Where now is that body that was born in Bethlehem that hung on a cross 
and was buried in a grave. Where is that body right now? That same body is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. So he was before Bethlehem. He put on a body, took on human nature. And in one man you have, because he didn't quit being God. When the lawyer goes to Congress, he doesn't stop being a lawyer. He becomes a congressman. I'm not going to do any jokes about either one of those offices, okay? <laughs> but see me afterwards. I got plenty of them. He doesn't cease to be a lawyer. He just has a new role. Jesus didn't cease to be God. He became man. And while he was here, we learned in Philippians, he put that independent exercise of deity aside and he depended on the Holy Spirit to work through him as a man because Adam failed. According to Romans 5, Adam failed us, didn't he? He sinned and sin passed upon all men for all have sinned. We'll understand hopefully in a second why Jesus was not born with sin. You don't become a sinner, you're born a sinner. It's your nature. The Bible says in Colossians 3, 3, that when you come into Christ, that old nature is put to death. You die. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away, all things become new. Jesus had a put, put on humanity, but without sin. How did that happen? Because he was conceived by God. In the, in the womb of a virgin. And so he did not inherit man's sin nature, but he was fully human because he was born of a woman. All right? And in fact, God, the Trinity, is involved in his birth. You know this verse, but let me read to you Luke 135. Listen to this verse. And the angel answered her. Mary just said, she just got told, you're going to have a baby. And she said, uh, and she said, well, how's that going to work, seeing I've never known a man? I know I'm engaged, but we, we, we have been faithful to God. How's that going to work? And so the angel gives her an answer. And he says, the Holy Spirit, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, the Most High is going to overshadow you, and the child will be put into your womb. And this child will be called Holy, the Son of God. We see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit right there with Mary. You follow that? Okay. So you say, I understand that. So why did he do that? It's so God, God could be understood. God wants us to know who he is. God wanted us to be able to see him. The Bible tells in Hebrews, God is a spirit cannot be seen by any man. I'm not sure that you will actually be able to see God when you get to heaven. The Bible says he dwells in indescribable light. You may see the light that is coming off of him, but you may never see God because the Bible says you can't see him. So he, God, the second person of the Trinity, who is also God. God is the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. They're the same God in three persons, equal in glory and authority and power. But the Son, the second person, put on humanity. And he did not cease to be God when he was incarnated, when he became a man. He became fully human so you and I could see and know God. John 1.18, the same chapter. Probably, if your Bible's not still open, your finger may still be there. Look at verse 18 of John uh, chapter 1. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side he, Jesus, has made him known. The one who was at the Father's side came to earth and put on a body and has made God the Father known to us in that. 
That's why verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. But the Word put on flesh. He became flesh for us. And so God wants us to know Him. You see, Jesus changed His form and added an additional form without changing the original. He did not act as God, but he was not less than God. That, that's a big mouthful. Takes a minute for that to soak in. He was never anything more than man. He was never anything less than God all at the same time. You say, I don't understand that. Well, neither do I. Neither does anybody else that claims it. <laughs> because that's a God thing, right? But we have to understand it. It's important for our salvation that God did this. Because if Jesus had just come as God, he couldn't die for man. And God had set up the rules so that he couldn't just go, it's okay, you're pardoned. God set up the rules that somebody had to pay the price of sin. We talked about that a little bit last week, that God made skins out of animals. Something had to die. We don't know what kind of animal God killed for that. I got a suspicion, but I don't know because the Bible doesn't say, so I'm not going to say it. But God sacrificed an innocent animal for our sin. Jesus became the sacrificial lamb, right? What did John the Baptist say about him? Behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. What did Abraham say about him? The Lord will provide for himself a lamb. And so God was going to provide. God did provide. And so since God became a man so that we could know God, we can trust God. You know why we can trust the Lord Jesus and we can trust God? Because he decided to identify with us. I'm going to let that, that statement say, soak in before I say this. He could have come as God. Now, I already told you he couldn't have died for us as God because that wouldn't have counted. He set up the rules that a human had to pay the price for sin. He, without sin, took on all of our sin, according to Corinthians, the one who knew no sin became sin for our behalf that we could become the righteousness of God in him. He traded with us. Here's Jesus purely righteous. Here's us purely sinful. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness. So our righteousness is not our own. It's the righteousness of Christ in us. Are you with me? Okay. And so in, in his coming, he decided to identify with us rather than the Father. He could have come floating out of heaven in all his glory and said, I'm the Son of God, worship me. But that's not what he did. I brought, I brought this out. I told somebody, this is a sermon illustration I put up here. I'm looking for a baby who would volunteer to lay here all morning. But I uh, couldn't find one of those. But this is a representative of where Jesus laid when he was born. There, there's hay in it because the animals ate out of this. And they scooped all that out and laid Jesus in there. Get a hold of that. God put on, became flesh, and dwelt with us in one of these. And, of course, Luke 2 tells us he grew in stature and favor with God and man, right? And so he can be trusted. Here's what Hebrews 4, 15 says. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He became a man to expose himself to sin, and he passed the test. You say, when did that happen? Glad you asked that question. It happened in the temptation in the wilderness. 
After fasting 40 days, Satan tempted him with the pride of, with the, uh, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And Jesus rejected each one. As the, Satan tempted him, he tempted the, Adam and Eve in the garden the exact same way. And by the way, we'll look at this more next week, but the virgin birth was prophesied by Isaiah in chapter 7 and verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. He identified with us by becoming one of us. And in fact, if you look in John 15, you can do that when you go home. He talks about, I am the vine, you are the branches, and my father's the gardener. Jesus is attached to us, and the father is going to prune the branches of the vine. And so when we get pruned, he feels it because he's identified with us. He decided to come to our camp and pay the price for us that God who had only judgment for lost mankind, that frown could be turned into a smile and the love of God could be enacted for us to bring us into his family. You with me? Amen. I want you to, I know, it, 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 and I'm, I'm telling you, I had like, you know, tons of more stuff uh, about this, but I, I want you to catch that. You see, the fourth thing I want you to catch is he is a God who should be worshipped. When we say that, and I don't think we fully sometimes even get that, what does it mean to worship? We, it's to attribute worth to someone or something. When I see a 70 Chevelle, I'm like, whoa, that's cool. All right, I'm saying that thing is a good car, right? So I'm attributing worth to it because it, for me it has worth. Maybe not to you. It has worth. Am I worshiping it? No, but that's the idea of the word. That I am only saying what that person is. I'm saying he is worthy. We sang the song, he is worthy. That is using worship. Worship. He is worthy to receive the scroll and open it. Jesus is worshiped. And I think we ought to worship Christ at least three ways, okay? And I think these will kind of fulfill all the ways we should. First of all, we ought to worship him consciously, consciously. In other words, being aware you're doing it, okay? In other words, we say, well, I worship the Lord. Well, wait a minute. Do you set aside a time to worship the Lord? Do you take time to do that? So I think we ought to consciously take some time and say, I'm just going to worship the Lord. What did Jesus say when he was asked, how should we pray? He started the prayer off with worship. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. That's worship. That's saying, God, we know who you are. You are the thrice holy God. You are perfectly holy. There is no shifting shadow in you. There is nothing beside you. You are the one that stands alone in all the universe and all creation. There is none like you. And someday... You, you ought to start your day like that. You ought to just begin consciously saying yes to Jesus. Some of you don't want to sing in church when we sing because you think you don't sing well. But you can worship well with your voice no matter what it sounds like to other men. I encourage you to get a song book or hymn book or publish some or turn on the radio and sing with it or get a, you know, whatever, however you collect music. Get a good song and sing it out with all your heart by yourself. <laughs> I mean, you ought to worship God in a way that if somebody saw you doing it, they'd think you were crazy. When people start using headphones with their, with their phones, you know how many people at Walmart say, excuse me? I thought they were talking to me. 
No, I thought, and then I thought, is he crazy talking to himself? Oh, he's got a headset. He's not talking to himself, right? You ought to worship God and hope nobody sees you because you just loving God as hard as you can, telling him how great he is. You ought to consciously do that. I think when you come in here on Sunday morning, you ought to consciously come into worship. I mean, I don't know why you showed up this morning. I'm glad you did. I'm super appreciative of it. But why did you come? Did you come because it was time to come? Did you come out of habit or duty? Or did you come because you wanted to come in here and know that we would be lifted up in the singing to worship God, that we would hear from God in his word, that your teacher would bring the word of God in Sunday school to you and, and to explain God's word to you so that you could know him and understand him and love him even more and have more with which to worship him. I think that ought to be why we come. I, I think we ought not only worship him consciously but completely I, I would love to ask a survey question too many people in here do it but here's the survey question what hinders you when you start to pray I hope you thought of a couple things in those few seconds of silence because I don't know about you but I start to pray and I go wait a minute did I turn that light off right or you go to pray and you go, oh, I forgot to get that at the store. Or you go to pray and it's like, I meant to tell my wife or my kids this thing and I forgot to. Right? Why does that happen? Because there's somebody that wants you to worship God. And it's not God. So he comes in and he tries to hinder you. He'll throw things at you to stop you. But here's something else that happens. We have other gods in our lives than God. And so that's what I mean by completely. I think we ought to get rid of everything but God. We were, we were talking about this in our Sunday school class. I don't know where y'all went with it. But we, we went to the place of talking about how great God is and how holy he is. And that he is so great, there ought not to be anything in our life but him. I, I thought of a, a statement I heard, and I don't like, I, I like cliches, but we shouldn't use them too much. But, but, but I heard one once I really like, and it's, you won't know Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. And the problem with Americans is we got so much that we forget we came naked into this world and naked we shall leave. If you work your whole life in the meantime to build wealth here, you being of sound mind and body will leave it all. But if you build up treasures in heaven, that's what the Bible says. Do not build treasures on earth where the thief comes in and steals and the moth corrupts and rust corrupts it and the moth eats it up. I'm wearing a wool jacket, man. Moths love to eat on this thing. It's timber. I love this. I like this kind of jacket. This is one of my favorite jackets. And it's going to rot. <laughs> or I could put it in glass and look at it every day. Man, I love that jacket. That is a cool, I mean, it's a Harris Tweed. I got it at a thrift store for like five bucks. <laughs> <laughs> then I had to spend like 40 bucks to get it to fit. But that's okay. <laughs> it was too big. Jan said, it's too big for us. I don't care. I'll find a tailor. And I did. I wanted this jacket. Ah, I'm being silly to make a point. When you go to worship God, 
what's standing between you and total surrender and devotion to him God alone is worthy of our worship and our praise and there can be no divided allegiance there can be it God never comes next it's not God and it's God only was sitting at a table eating with another believer the other day and he young guy and he had on his lapel a Jesus first pin how many of y'all remember those Dr. Falwell senior man he in the 70s he you could you know send him five bucks and he'd send you a pin or something like that I don't know but I had one I said is that a Jesus first pin he said yep given to me by Dr. Falwell himself the, old, the elder not the younger you know we kind of misunderstood that we thought yeah Jesus first everything else comes second no Jesus is first and second and third and fourth and fifth he's everything there is no competition with him and if there is you've got another God if it's Jesus and you have something else you need to empty to see God alone and I think when we worship God it must be completely worship God I'm thankful for the blessings of God but it is God that granted me those blessings and he alone gets the word the praise right and thirdly I'd say you ought to worship God and I'm going to use this word commonly because I tried to make them all C's. And that's a dangerous thing for preachers to do. But hear what I'm saying. Everything you do ought to be an act of worship. That's what I meant. When you wake up in the morning, that's an act of worship. As a friend of mine prayed one time in my presence, Lord, thank you for this morning reaching down with your hand of love and touching me and making me, causing me to wake up and behold a day that I've never seen before. And I'm never going to see again. That's how you wake up in worship. Wake up thanking him that you woke up. To have a day to dedicate to him for his sake, his glory. And when you get dressed and when you eat your meal and when you make decisions all day long. And we have big decisions and small decisions we're making all the time. And every decision ought to be run through the filter of does this glorify God? Does this worship God? People... You know, when, when, when you get a little legalistic, people start asking this question. Well, can I do this and still be right with God? Well, my question is, can you worship God while you're doing it? And if you can, go for it. But if you know it's sin, the Bible says if you doubt in your heart, it's sin. So if you doubt whether you can do that, don't do it. Simple answer, right? Commonly, we ought to be worshiping God in what we do every day, every motion, every word, everything we do. And so we have a God that became a man, a God that could be understood, and a God that, that we can trust so that he is a God we can worship. And we ought to do that consciously. We ought to do that completely, and we ought to do that commonly all the time. So what else can you do with this message? What else can you take away from this? I'll ask you some questions, and you, you'll have to apply them. What is the relevance of Jesus becoming flesh? What, is that ha what relevance does that have in your life? You see, it is of utmost importance that Jesus became flesh because he revealed God, he revealed the plan of God. And God didn't send Jesus to give us a plan. He, he, sent a, he came as a person to, to bring us deliverance, right? He didn't come to give us a plan of salvation. He came to give us the person of salvation. That he who knew no sin would become sin on our behalf. That we could be the righteous of God in him. So what relevance does it have in your life to understand that God went to the trouble of creating us in the first place. 
And then becoming one of us to pay for our sins so that we could know him and love him in some way like he loves us. And we don't love him because we love him. We love him because he first loved us. So what relevance does it have in your life personally? I'm telling you what relevance it ought to have, but what relevance does it have in your life? It may not have any relevance. You, you may say, I don't care that Jesus was born. I just hope I get a lot of presents for Christmas. Because that might be all Christmas means to you. But what it means is that God defeated our enemy. This is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. When he came to earth and he went to the cross, he crushed Satan's head. And Satan bruised his heel. And this eternal war has been going on since time began and before time. And it still goes on today. Jesus and Satan are at odds and there is a war. And right now there's about two... I'll just use big round numbers. About 2 billion Christians in the world. And there's about 4 other billion people. 2 more billion that have the opportunity to hear whether they do or not. And 2 billion that have no opportunity whatsoever to hear the gospel. So we got a big job ahead of us, don't we? And, it, and for 4 billion people in the world, the birth of Jesus means absolutely nothing. At least. Because I don't believe all 2 billion of those who say they're Christians are acting like it. And you can't be a Christian and not act like it. And you can't not act like it and say you're a Christian. Secondly, Jesus can be trusted. So are you trusting him with everything in your life? Are, he, are you letting him tell you what you ought to do with your life? Are you t letting him tell you about the decisions you're making that they are filtered through the will of God for your life? That God is leading you in a direction to glorify him? We, the verse that in our Sunday school this morning was that all things work together for the good of God to those who love him or call according to his purpose. He didn't say it'll be good what happens to you. But he said he'll work it to the good. Not necessarily for us but for his will. And are you as you trust God. Are you letting him help you make those decisions. Or making those decisions. A great missionary Hudson Taylor said. God leaves reserves the best. For those who leave the choice up to him. And so the fact that Jesus went to all this effort. So that you could know God and you could know his will. Romans 12, one, uh, Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. That through a process that's written there, you might be able to prove the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So you can know it. And if you can know it, you ought to know it. And if you know it, you ought to obey it. Right? So second question, what does it mean for you? And then thirdly, how are you going to worship him today? I'm sorry, I just had a flash in my mind that some married people in here are going to say, I'm going to do that. You're going to go home and say, honey, I'm going to go in this room over here and I'm going to shut the door and don't come in no matter what you hear. <laughs> I say that a little bit jokingly, but not completely. You ought to get alone with God and just worship him.